Today's episode of the Chitheads podcast features Inkem Indefo. Inkem Indefo and Ray Johnson will be co-teaching a new course beginning July 20th, 2020, Embodied Activism, Navigating the Intersections of Embodiment and Social Justice. To learn more about this exciting new online course, head to embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash activism. Again, that's embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash activism. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Inkem Indefo. Inkem is the founder and president of Lumos Transforms and creator of the Resilience Toolkit, a model that promotes embodied self-awareness and self-regulation in an ecologically sensitive framework and social justice context. Licensed as a nurse midwife, Inkem also has extensive postgraduate training in complementary health modalities and emotional therapies. She brings an abundance of experience as a clinician, educator, consultant, and community strategist to innovative programs that address stress and trauma and build resilience for individuals, organizations, and communities across sectors, both in her home country of the U.S. and internationally. Inkem is particularly interested in working alongside people most impacted by violence and marginalization. So hi, Inkem. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate uh, the invitation. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today about what is a really interesting conversation around trauma-informed, and um, and we've kind of agreed to explore uh, the difference between trauma-informed and what we might call kind of the orthodox view of trauma treatment. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about the story uh, that led you to the work that you do today. Oh, <laughs> it's a long one, right. but... Like there's a, I think it's funny. My mother a few years ago said, I don't understand your professional career at all. <laughs> Meaning it's like very eclectic, yeah. right? In the nicest term. And I explained to her what the through line was and she went, oh, now I see. Mm. So I've always been interested in the relief of suffering. I've always been interested in um, I'm, like uh, what's the deepest root, yeah. right? Like, where are the fulcrums? Where can we go? Um, I've always been interested in depth. Where can we go underneath to those deeper roots and make the kind of change that's possible, right? Yeah. As opposed to being, you know, very superficial, picking the fruit off the tree, so to say, and expecting right. a different tree. And so that trajectory has seen me where first I was like, oh, let's try education. Yeah. Right. And I was an activist and an organizer and also working at the same time with, you know, IV drug users in the late 80s in San Francisco, mm. uh, you know, uh, and kids, you know, dealing with, you know, just significant adversity. Yeah. And I realized the limits of this educational model. You can give people information, but they can't. It's not enough to change, right? So right. there's a sense, and my in coming into my own helplessness, like I feel like I'm not being helpful either. Um, and I had my first child with a midwife, and I said, "Oh, there it is. There's a power element, right? Mm. Help people find this internal sense of power." And so I pivoted and did that work for for quite some time. Again, working with a range of people in a range of settings, everything from um, you know, driving around in an RV through South LA, providing primary care to, to sex workers and, um, to having a home birth and serving people of all different religious, uh, affiliations and, you know, different kinds of faiths. And I began to realize that having a, a transformative birth wasn't enough. It wasn't a deep enough route because I thought if you get to birth, right, that's like, People are more willing to make change than any other time in their life when a new life is coming. And it's yeah. a trajectory for the birthing person, the family, right? And yeah. and the whole things are shifted. But I realized that trauma would come up and hijack that process. And so for the last 13 years or so, I refocused in the areas of trauma and stress and resilience Again, I'm interested in working in lots of different contexts because it teaches me a lot about 
what's generalizable and what's con you know context specific to to people's experiences and in individual experiences and so that's how where i am is just really interested in working in this area of trauma beautiful um, and so that's the through line transformation liberation relief of suffering yeah so so it's interesting so you you were you're ta talking of the story about seeking out kind of the roots of suffering and you know first you thought okay education and then you sort of moved towards power and then finally uh, and birth and then and then to trauma and and so i'm interested but also you know once you found kind of that the the locus of trauma and, and started to investigate that how has your um uh perception of trauma or your your conception even of trauma shifted since you've started to do that work I think I've always thought of trauma very broadly because I came from an organizing background. I, you know, in my undergraduate, I studied directly with Angela Davis. I mean, I was wow. working in, um, I ran a women's center at San Francisco state. I mean, I went there to study with her. Yeah. Uh, so I was doing, you know, sort of anti-racist, anti-oppression, anti, -oppression, anti that, then it was anti-apartheid, like looking at, you know, intersectionality before we had the word. So it was a broad scoping of what trauma is, as well as my own individual experience as a, you know, a survivor of childhood sexual trauma, mm -hmm. and then the transgenerational trauma in my family, on my father's side from Biafra, from Nigeria, on my mother's side, um, Jewish Ashkenazi coming from, you know, uh, pre-Holocaust, but still many, the pogroms, et cetera. So, um, so all of those threads were part of what I thought was trauma was always quite big. What I realized in doing the work is that although trauma is the root of probably most of our suffering, if not, you know, our own personal suffering or collective suffering, but also engenders what we inflict on others yeah. individually and collectively, um, I realized that most people were not ready to engage in the dialogue around trauma. If you say the word trauma, people are like, not me, them. Mm. it's somebody else's there's very few people who really can talk about it and I that was the big aha for me about how is that so I actually in common use I don't use the word all that often interesting okay uh there what do you was use instead stress mm. it's acceptable mm. and if stress is strong enough you could say it's trauma. Like we have to get people in the dialogue. I mean, if people, when people are trying to survive, right, and they're in the middle of surviving, they cannot stop and say, my God, this is a trauma. They will collapse. Yeah. And in working with vulnerable and marginalized and people experiencing chronic and, you know, violence, like for two years, I worked, designed and ran a program for refugee torture survivors, right? Like people were people experiencing homelessness um, and chronic mental and physical health issues, right? In South LA. So really like seeing people in the midst of it who would not say I am, I'm in trauma, but clearly we would all be like, oh my God, that's a yeah. trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I recognize that that conversation, when I work with individuals, I would never force you to say what your experience is until you yourself feel you can, you have to be somewhat removed from it to say, wow, that was bad. Yeah. And so I realized that's a, a larger framing. And so I actually, that would be really helpful. Although I know it's like, we need to get people on the bridge. Yeah. They're not even on the bridge and they're terrified of the bridge. And so what needs to happen is so I actually developed an approach specifically for this area, even though I love to work at that depth place of the trauma, I realized that we needed, um, people needed to build capacity to get in the conversation and stay in the conversation with themselves and with each other. Mm. And that was to help people get on the bridge. Like, and I've come to realize it's about making space for people for transformation, right? Yeah. We need space for the healing to happen. Yeah. Uh, and so my scoping of trauma hasn't changed. I just realized the translation had to be different so that people can hear it because otherwise what 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 am I what's the point here? Yeah. That's so interesting. So what do yeah. you think would be kind of the the currently are still sort of the prevailing or fundamental obstacles that that 
you know, keep someone from getting on the bridge, as you say, or keep someone from being able to hear, um, uh, you know, such that they can start to engage in this conversation? Like post per bo both kind of culturally, politically, personally, like what are those kind of fundamental obstacles that you really have to work through to get I on think the bridge? I think it's survival. So people are, you know, in this economy before COVID, right? I mean, people are stretched to the maximum, mm -hmm. right? We rampant, you know, income inequality. People are just trying to survive. The amount of work that people have to produce. Oh my God, yeah. The atomization and the separation that people don't have each other in community. So these conditions of life do not make space for reflection, right? And um, so th I think that is the prevailing, prevailing uh, condition. And then in many places, um, because that has existed for so long, and in some places across generations, right? that there's a loss of skill in self-reflection and being able to sit with difficulty. Mm. Mm. So there's skill development that's needed. Yeah. I mean, all of the contemplative practices, right, are skill development in that area. But you have to, I mean, who, who gets access to that? Who has space for that? Exactly, yeah. 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 So, okay, so a similar question um, is, you know, getting into kind of the topic of trauma. And of course, you're talking about how, you know, in a very skillful way, you, you, you change the verbiage around some of these things in order for them to be more accessible, accessible for people in order for people to be able to, you know, um, step on the bridge. Um, what are, uh, besides kind of obstacles to that, what are, in your view, some of the kind of persistent or prevailing misunderstandings about trauma or stress um, in our culture today? It's generally conceived of narrowly as interpersonal violence. Mm. And part of that is the way Western culture is highly individualized, especially in North America, where we individualize everything. We have a hard time with the, the subtlety and nuance of the system. Yeah. Right. And so we look at harm done from one person to another in a very, like a very violent, like a physical violence way. And maybe we'll understand like a car accident could be traumatic, but like grief, traumatic grief, that's a hard one for people. Mm. Suck it up, get over it. You don't have, we don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm. Or, um, what I would say is the like the economic violence that people live with, right? That it's completely traumatic. Yeah, and it's so normalized, people don't even recognize it as such. Right. So that, so trauma, it often I say is something that overwhelms you. Your regular coping and is just not enough. Mm. Something that overwhelms you, and that so, um, it's bigger than you. This is the sense. And things can be a little bigger or a lot bigger. So we had, you know, uh, I mentioned it earlier, um, but we decided we wanted to explore um, uh, kind of the differences between um, some of these different approaches. And one of, when we had our kind of preliminary conversation, one of the really interesting things for me that came up was the distinction between um, kind of what we might call the orthodox, you know, trauma treatment and um, and trauma-informed work, which is, you know, kind of the, you know, the term that we might say encompasses um, your approach. So what is the difference between this kind of more traditional or orthodox treatment of trauma and, and trauma-informed as we're seeing it emerge today? I think the orthodox trauma, trauma treatment is talk therapy, mm. <laughs> right? And what we know in the neuroscience of the last 15 years is that trauma is a body experience. Right. Right. Which is, again, a return to ancient ways of thinking. It's not, not a surprise, but somehow we had to relearn. We have to relearn things over and over again. Um, and with that, we've seen just an explosion of somatic practices, new somatic practices, new old somatic practices around trauma. Um, but the trauma-informed approach is actually very different than that. And it do, it's not um, the province of solely trauma treatment. 
And in fact, there are trauma treatments that are not trauma-informed at all. Mm-hmm. So the movement for, to become trauma-informed came out of uh, sort of the behavioral health or mental health system in the U.S., And to me, it touches on older truths about ways to work. But to see it codified, it was codified in um, by the the sort of this mental health approach. And it has like the goal is it's a little bit of universal precautions, which I think about HIV. Right. When how we when HIV, we first discovered HIV, the idea was like, oh, you're only going to wear gloves or use protection with people who are high risk. And then people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's assume everybody has this. Let's use universal precautions. Everyone wears gloves. Everyone has safer sex. It's just what you do. And it's sort of a universal precaution around trauma. It's an assumption we all have some. Hmm. And how do we avoid one? How do we recognize it? Right. And how do we avoid re-traumatizing? And not only that, how do we build systems and practices and, and, and structures that encode that knowing and that way of being? And that's being trauma-informed. And so there's six central principles which are worth, so worth mentioning, these principle clusters. Um, and these center and guide, I find them as guideposts for actually for living a humane life right? So the first is safety. Second is trust and transparency. Then collaboration and mutuality. Peer support. Voice, choice, and self-agency. And cultural humility. Hmm. So when you look at those as principles for living, right, like let alone doing trauma treatment, but just principles of living, right, that you would want to be in a place where you center safety, where you can feel trusting, where you have peers who understand or are willing to learn alongside each other about our cultures, whatever, on whatever identity or history we have, where our voices matter, where we collaborate. It's like, yeah, yeah, give me more of that. Yeah. Right. And so a trauma-informed approach can exist anywhere. It can exist in education. It can exist in um, healthcare, And ideally, it should exist in trauma treatment. But it doesn't always, mm-hmm. right? So I can think of the, this moment of reckoning for many of these somatic practices, trauma treatments, when suddenly they're being called out for racism, right? If you're not culturally humble, which means Basically, it's an anti-oppression lens. Yeah, you're trauma informed. So all of these trauma treatments that are now like, oh no, right, right, they're basically saying we're not trauma informed because we missed this part. And it's not enough. I have this thing. It's not enough to diversify your teaching staff. Right. I really don't care about the identity, frankly. Right. It's about the perspective and the approach, and even so much as the thing about cultural humility that's very interesting. It's like, I don't expect you as a white man to have my experience, nor would you expect me as a black woman to have your experience, right? It's how do we learn together about each other? And we do that culturally humble stance. And we do that from recognizing we all have culture. I have culture, you have culture on all different axes. I have a disability, I have whatever the axes, I'm cis, you know, cisgendered, whatever the axes, I have some culture around that, right? And the one big problem with a lot of these somatic therapies is not so not even that they don't include the experience of people of color, black, indigenous people of color. It's they don't even include their experience of whiteness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't even include their their own culture. The assumption is their culture is normative. Yeah. That is not culturally humble. That's not trauma informed. And that's just one place. Yeah. Right. That that we can talk about. So I just said a whole lot of stuff. Oh, my gosh. It was so amazing. I love it. Um, So on that, you know, on that topic of cultural humility. So what are some of like the techniques that would be kind of implemented for that to start start showing up so that, you know, each individual could start to face, confront and 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 really acknowledge and and therefore become more sensitive to um, both one's own culture 
you know, outside this kind of normalized gesture that you're mentioning and then someone else's? Like how, what are the sort of tools that one uses? I understand like the theoretical reasoning, but what are some of the ways that that can start to uh, take place within the, the trauma-informed context? Well, first off, sometimes you'll hear this idea of cultural competence, which you just like, let's just talk that out on the ear. Like, there's no way anyone would ever be completely competent in all cultures and right. all subcultures. So just like, okay, so right? Yeah. Like, there is no expert, right? <laughs> so that's, that, that's why I like the idea of the humility. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea, can we interrogate our own cultures on all axes of identity and, and history? And that's a big shift right, to de-center or de-center um, de ourselves, right? Yeah. And it's a developmental task because as children, we're the center of the world. And it's a developmental task of maturity to de-center ourselves, mm. Mm. right? And how we are our normalcy, right? Like that I am the norm and you are the other on everything. And so, you know, it's a big lesson in empathy, it's a big lesson in empathy. And um, I think about some training. I, I mean, I've had lots of training over the years. And there's I trained with a group of doctors in Mumbai for a number of years. Uh, it's called the sensation method of homeopathy. And in this method, it's about deeply listening to people about their core experience, even to the, what gestures they make and the, the synchrony between gestures and words and and non, and and I had to really go to a meditative state to remove my preconceived notions of even how people defined words. Heavy. What's heavy to you? And we would talk for 20 minutes about what heavy is until there's a gesture that comes for heaviness for that person. And I learned how different people are. It was such a lesson in humility that how, and so for every regular conversation I have, I don't go into that meditative state. I'm totally projecting and identifying and centering myself. And I don't think we need to be so absolute, right? I was doing it for you know a purpose there, but it was instructive. Yeah. And so this process of how could someone else look at this, right? And this is having, you know, I think of my own intersectional identity, right? I have an African father, but I grew up in the United States. So I look African-American, but I'm African-American, right? Right. And so, and there's other junctures of being at, at the intersections. And so I became very adept at code switching. Mm. I can switch into, so I can switch into one vernacular and into another vernacular. And I call it, um, almost like it's like a conscious chameleon, right? Like we can switch here and there. And and so when you are marginalized, we become very good at code switching. Mm. So it's easier for us to do this. But if you are centered in any way, it's very hard. It's not a skill that you had to develop to survive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about... Um, you know, like the the meditative component that really, because a lot of the things, especially with the words, you know, which is so beautiful, like the way in which kind of we sort of, how different words are affectively charged based on, you know, culture and, and there's a kind of almost like an embodied disposition that sort of like very subtly arises, you know, in, in kind of the differentiated expression of words. But, you know, to encounter that, do you think that it's necessary, like, are we able to do that without something like some kind of contemplative practice? Like, what is the role of, of contemplative practices in this work? They're very important. The first off is, if you have the space for a contemplative practice, then yes. And if you don't... Yeah. Like my work is helping make space for people to have it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's where where, where I work is making is is making space. Yeah. Um, I love the deep dives, but I recognize that this was just needed on a on a mass level. So, yes, um, and be caught. I mean, and that it's there's a meta contemplative because the paradigm with which you chose your practice, the tradition you chose has a culture. Yeah. Everything has, science has a culture. Everything has a culture. It's what the questions you ask 
come from your culture. There are questions you can't even conceive of because they're outside of your frame. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that excites me, right? Yeah, that excites me. Right. It's like, oh, it's so juicy. What else is like the unknown unknowns in the best kind of way. Right. But for a lot of people, it's terrifying. And I recognize that that's terrifying. And instead of shaming people for not being able to cross that, it's like, what do you need? Because I see it like, what do you need? How can I help you? Mm. And that we can do this together. And I think as we build that capacity individually, we start to build it collectively for holding like our ability to hold these conversations right now in relation to the uprisings. The uprisings has caused an opening, Yeah. right? Right. And those of us who can sit, I think about um, I, during the peak of New York uh, COVID, right? Hopefully that was your only peak. We'll be done with that. I hope so too. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with uh, on a couple of occasions, a group of chaplains for a large hospital system. And they came the first, both times, because they were overwhelmed with the, right? Hmm. And I mean, these are people of faith. I think of chat, I mean, it really shook me, actually. I think that's one of like a, a moment of the pandemic, my experience was how, what that meant for people of faith who are chaplains to feel like they're buckling. And in the conversations, what what I wanna highlight was, they said that it was very frustration to see the medical providers like robots, because there were so many bodies they were processing, alive and dead. And I said, they don't have the capacity to feel, they have to keep moving, and if they don't, they'll collapse. And there was like a compassion around that, And I said, and you as people of faith with deep contemplative practices have a bigger capacity. So you can feel more, you can hold more of the trauma with and with people, right? But everybody has a limit. We're in human bodies. We have a limit and even they had reached their limit. And so it was okay for them to hear, yeah, you might be numb right now. You might not have the space to have that that contemplation about the nature of trauma mm. right now because you too are surviving and to have compassion around that and that no in cycles we have contraction we have expansion right yeah so yeah so you know you're talking about helping others make space like in this you know in this example um, with the New York hospital chaplains and and also in other contexts or, um, you know, helping people find space for the contemplative um, component or, or, you know, part of their lives. So I'm curious as to kind of how how you do that, because I know that there's a lot of people that just like, I just don't have the time, you know, like that's kind of the big the big thing. But is that even like the the feeling of not having the time? Is that really a symptom or expressive of something else? Like what is how do you help others find the time? I mean, uh, find the space. So whenever I'm up against a quandary, if I come back to those trauma-informed principles, I will, they're guideposts and they'll have an answer. Mm. The answer is the guidepost of safety. The answer here is the guidepost of choice. Okay. And cultural humility. Those are really the three principles that have guided how I come to that. And the one is I do kind of education about stress. And I just say, like, this is what stress looks like. This is what stress feels like. Does any of this resonate? Yeah. Right. Maybe like, oh, yeah, this resonates. (laughs) And I talk about, you know, through this kind of thing. And then I say stress is there to save you. Your stress responses save you. So there's a validation of their experience. Like I'm looking, when they're saying, I don't have time, I'm doing this and that, I'm taking, I'm trusting them at face value. That is their experience. Yeah. I'm not, you have two minutes to do something, right? Yeah. I'm, that means I don't trust them. So I'm going to pull trust in too. I'm going to trust them, trust people, and they become trustworthy. I trust them, I become trustworthy. I trust what that is their experience. And I say, your stress is there to keep you safe. 
right? It's there to keep you safe. So I'm right. It's not a bad thing. And then the question, we have a series of guiding questions that we use in our practice. And I say, the question is just ask yourself, is my stress serving me right now? So then they just, this question of like, because I've described what stress is and they're like, well, yeah, it is. I'm like, good, then go do it. Go, you know, hustle and do what you do. But is there a chance you could be over responding a little bit? Like a little extra that maybe you didn't need. And they're like, no, maybe. So I take it as an exploration, right? So there's no judgment. I trust, you know, your experience, maybe you're, you're, it's exactly, but you know, is there a possibility? And just by asking it in that question, in that way, right. I'm centering them. They get to make a choice there. I'm respecting wherever they are and trusting. And then, so I say, do you want to try as an experiment to see if something works? And then we use very, very short intervent like practices, very short, right? Cause they're not about spiritual liberation. They're about settling people's stress because when you actually settle their stress, that's when you make space. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I'll do just, you know, maybe a quick breathing something, right? So they do a quick breathing something. I go, did that work? Did you get worse or better? And if they got worse, I'm like, we well, want to try something else. If they got, got a little better, I said, well, what do you notice now? I said, so what that means is in the moment before you were over responding a little bit, you were carrying a little more stress than you needed. Does it feel better now? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, and then now you can operate where, you know, it's more effective, right? I'm not saying no stress, right? I'm not using the word trauma. Now you can operate here, right? And so from, they now have a little more space. There's a little less time pressure. Let them operate there for a bit. Let them learn this practice. What I always say is, can you come to the lowest effective stress response in any given moment? Or alternately, I'll say a key to resilience is knowing when it's safe enough to rest and resting effectively. So just, right, this is how I put it, just little bits. And it makes it so it's, um, it's safe. I'm orienting towards safety. I'm trusting that they will, we can, and we do this together collaboratively and figure it out together. And in that way, people discover a little more spaciousness, mm. right? Mm. So there was a woman who was in, uh, we have a certification program and she was in the certification program. She's a counselor in a, um, a university, a big university in California. And so the school sent her and she's in the program um, and she can only do the movement practices. She can't do any of the seated practices and they're all short. We're talking like a minute. Mm. Doesn't work for her. And it's nothing, you know, if you're that activated, of course, it's going to make you worse. Like, it's not a surprise. Yeah. So it's like, use what works for you. About two months into the, pra the program, the certification program, where she's practicing regularly, journaling and practicing together collectively as well, individually and collectively, she, tr she says, I'm going to try one of the seated practices. And she did. And she's like, it worked. Amazing. Because she had to make, she had to use the movement practices to make enough space to even do a seated practice. Yeah. So instead of saying, you have to, come on, let's put you on a schedule. And this is my learning. I've you know, done a lot of work with gang intervention workers. You gotta meet people where they are. And that's a big part of being trauma informed. Like I can come in with all kinds of theories and these guys will just be like, mm, no. <laughs> Right. Or teenagers. Like I've run a few programs for pregnant and parenting teens, like experiencing homelessness. Again, I mean, I wasn't kidding when I said working with folks yeah. who are, you know, vulnerable and marginalized. And what do what did they have to teach me? Right. Like I think of one girl in particular where she talked about her family dog being sick and they didn't have money to go to the vet and, you know, it was really distressing for her. And I, I could, you know, I was like, oh God. And so the question was, was you, how was your stress response? Like, do you think, you know, it matched the situation? She goes, no, I think I over-responded. I think I could have taken better care of myself. And that was from her, Yeah. right? Like, so she's reclaiming her power around her responses. And when so much is out of control for her, And then another girl in that same group who was 15 with a one-year-old living in a hotel on a voucher was so worried that her baby was crying and she would be kicked out and be home on the streets again. And she said, you know what? I think I'm pretty frozen. And she goes, and I think that's where I need to be. And we were like, that's exactly where you need to be. 
rather than demanding that she make space and become contemplative under those conditions? No. No, not under those conditions. And so this is what taught me um, to be flexible and like really what is generalizable and what is specific and how do I meet people in a very trauma-informed way to their their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And she stayed and she kept coming every every week she came. Every week she came. And we actually had an outside evaluator on that program. And her resilience grew more than anybody else in that program. Wow. So let's talk about resilience a little bit because, you know, you have developed uh, this beautiful offering called the Resilience Toolkit, which is, um, uh, you know, a certification program that you offer through through your center. Um, you know, what is resilience? And, um, you know, just like, you know, getting very kind of basic concept sort of sort of way, like what is resilience um, from the perspective of, of your work? So resilience is often thought of as bouncing back, right? Like the quality of bouncing back, you know, I kind of think it's like a flexible strength to meet challenge, right? It's used often very punitively. The people who are most resilient are told they have to be even more resilient, mm. like get another job, take more punishment in the, in the workplace, or just be more resilient, suck it up. Mm. Um, so I reject that yeah. <laughs> use of the word resilience. And... There's some people who will use resilience in the idea of bouncing forward, like a post-traumatic growth, like you, something happened and not you're now stronger and wiser for it. Like, so you bounce forward, which I like. And the way we like to scope it, we call it alchemical resilience. And this idea, yes, it's the flexible strength to meet challenges. Yes, it's bouncing forward, but it's more than that. It's like, so now that you have this flexible strength to meet challenges, right? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with this extra capacity now? Hopefully working to change the conditions of adversity in the first place. Right? So we, the people around us don't have to be so resilient that we make this a kinder and gentler and more, you know, um, more just place to be with, you know, exist and together. And so it's the alchemy of making something, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. Beautiful. So that's the kind of resilience I'm after. So that's my North Star. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I want to mention um, for those that are listening that, you know, coming up you uh, in a couple of weeks, you and, and Ray are teaching, uh, Ray Johnson are co-teaching a course on embodied activism. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about kind of what it means to embody activism or as um, one of the kind of slogans of the course says, to bring your body to the work. Um, and how does that contrast with maybe, I don't know, orthodox forms or um, less embodied, disembodied forms of activism? Everything's political. The decision to be political or non-political is political. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're doing activism all the time. I'm a big fan of making the implicit explicit so you can be more intentional about it. Less oops (laughs) going on. Oops, I did it again. Uh Uh-huh. And so we like to, I mean, Ray and I have been talking as we're developing the course about what does everyday activism look like versus this idea I'm out protesting on either street. What is the activism that shows up in my conversations, in my in my way of dressing, my way of thinking and being, right? I even like think about when you think about the civil rights movement in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s, and we think about the big movements and marches. Yeah. I always thought was interesting is that there are were women who cooked. There were these legions of someone had to feed all those protesters. That was their activism. They fed people. They fed their bodies. So activism, like, so how we think about activism. So a big part of it is we want to really broaden how you think about it and recognize we bring our body to everything, Mm -hmm. right? And when we do things 
intentionally, uh, unintentionally, we think, you know, we're disembodied. Our body is still there and it's still actually calling a lot of the shots. Better make friends with it and connect with it and use it as a resource to help us with sustainability, right? But also as a, um, as a really wise, it can be a very wise compass. I mean, I think for trauma survival, the idea that our bodies will never steer us wrong is, is not true because if you're a trauma survivor, our compasses are, are really screwed up. <laughs> our compasses get real screwed up. It takes some time to get them to, you know, find North and South. Um, so, but that said in that process where your body can be a source of wisdom, you know, alongside, it's not an either or it's, you know, how do we move into more both and situations? Um, it's not either I'm active and I'm, I'm political or I'm spiritual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, this is interesting. I love what you're saying. Um, I wanted to add, you know, you're talking about how when we have kind of unresolved trauma, our compasses are screwed up. And I'm wondering, you know, in the context of activism, how you see this showing up, you know, in kind of the political sphere and kind of the domain of, of, of activism um, when we when we haven't um, maybe as yet integrated um, the activism into our bodies. I mean, I think that's where some of the danger lies. So when you're in a fight state, you're struggling and you're fighting, right? And against injustice, it, and if you're not aware of that fight response, it becomes generalized, mm. right? It becomes generalized. So you turn on your, you know, the folks who are side by side with you, right? It becomes just... And with that fight, right, there's a myopia, right, uh, a narrowing and a constricting of your vision, a rigidity, which, right, if you're not aware that, so that, um, and it, I don't know, I mean, I've also, I mean, I've come to realize that there are I mean, so many, the, the, to have the flexibility to have different approaches is needed. Like I think about the Hong Kong protesters and they say, be, be water, right? Like they were like water where the protests were so nimble, mm. right? They were so nimble. They would just shift tactics, this and that, be water. Wow. Okay. And I think about that fantastic book. Um, this is not an uprising. Highly recommend, mm. highly recommend this book. This is not an uprising about nonviolent or about you know um, civil civil um, civil protest and strategy, and this idea of flexibility that comes in. And so, like, if your trauma, as trauma often is, is around powerlessness and helplessness, okay. And if you have not done a significant amount of healing around that, any place you feel helpless will be terrifying. We are all helpless sometimes. So if you're like even needing to ask for help can be so hard. And so then we get in this, you know, folks who need to do everything and carry everything. I'm in recovery. Thank you very much <laughs> for that one. <laughs> um, so I'll call myself in on that. <laughs> and that it's the ability to let go, right, is part of what makes otherwise you burn out, you're not sustainable. And also, you're missing the collective wisdom from folks getting together and what comes out of that collaboration. Mm. Right? Because of your unresolved, or I can say in the past, my, and so it's now it's like, oh, the idea of delegation used to be like, ah, before, like, oh, it won't be done correctly. And now I'm like, great, this is wonderful. What'd you come up with? Ooh, that's a better way of doing things. Oh, can we, you know, move that? Let's do that to let great. Yeah. Right. So one better ideas, right. But that flexibility, but that came through my own healing. And I don't think where there's like this magic point, like, okay, now I'm healed enough and I can do this work. You know, it's all in, in a part, right? Like things don't, um, we heal as things arise. Yeah. Mm. Do you see this as, um, as, 
the the movement toward integrating these kinds of insights is is moving along you know in a in in a pretty progressive way or do you think there's still a lot of work to be done in kind of integrating activism with kind of the the resilient the cultivation cultivation of resilience and, and flexibility and the the watery uh quality that you're talking about i mean i have to credit like black lives matter like has always had like a uh, like a self-care element. There was a spiritual element. I remember seeing a panel a few years ago um, where they had someone from Black Lives Matter LA and someone from traditional black church talking about the role of spirituality in black liberation. And so to me, like spirituality often has a much better, a much stronger body component. And so it was just so beautiful to see that that conversation. Um, I think it's fits and starts. It depends, you know, some places it's happening well, some places not so much, but the conversation is up more than ever and how we, people are better scoping away from this narrow idea of self-care to collective care, the yeah. need for people to rest. I really, like, I love the work of the nap ministry. If you've seen yes. her, right. About, you know, reclamation of rest, recovery, as a form of activism, as anti-capitalist, um, right? Again, making space, yeah. making space here. Yeah. It's so interesting mm -hmm. how we've, you know, just become completely socialized to fill every gap. You know, it's like, it's like you, this idea that like, oh, I have a spare five minutes. I should get this accomplished. I should be productive in this way, this hyper, you know, productivity kind of compulsion that we all have. Um, which I think is, you know, I don't know if you agree, but I think is partly why contemplative practices have become so popular by necessity. It's like, because it's sort of an active, you know, like these are the 20 minutes when I'm doing nothing. This is the 20 minutes when I'm actually resting and restoring. Um, whereas perhaps, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago when it wasn't quite as intense, there was, um, you know, time to be bored. It was before cell phones, you know, it's like you actually, you, you could have a period where you had literally nothing to do and you laid on your floor and listened to music, you know, but. You know, but then in service, right? Like neoliberalism will come and suck us everything up. So we see mindfulness in the workplace so you can be more effective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be more productive? Meditate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so this has been a fascinating conversation, um, and I'm really um, grateful for you uh, offering your time today, Inkem. Um, I, so I want to just maybe close by seeing if there's anything you'd like to offer on the topic of of trauma informed in relation to what we anything we've been talking about that you think would be a nice kind of note to end on. I think whatever you do, it's like coming back to those principles. And if you can only just remember just the safety and trust, like even just that, the safety and trust, or even just one safety, like how are you centering safety in your relationships with yourself, your relationship with yourself, with others, right? Um, how are you trying to build more safety? Because that is like one of the, best ways to make more spaciousness. And when we're more spacious, we're more creative, we're more connected, we're, we're, um, we can dream, yeah. we can vision, so. Yeah, and just a little bit on that, because I actually wanted to talk to you about safety, because one of the things I noticed in on your website and uh, or on the website of um, your center is, um, you know, which is also something that I've seen in, in, um, in um, Stephen Porges's work about like safety being, um, you know, we have this idea of safety being sort of controlling the environment in various ways, whereas the safety you're talking about is the, like the cultivation of kind of an inner experience of safety. Is that right? It is. And to recognize um, it's again, as safe as possible. I don't want to discount what's external. You're living with violence. Like, yeah. You know, my son goes out for a run. He's over six feet tall, a young black man running. I'm nervous and I should be because it's yeah. not safe. And so that needs to be named. But the thing is, it's when he comes back home 
and he's actually safe here if I'm still carrying it. How do I know, how can I return to a safety? He's actually okay instead of still carrying it, mm. right? And it's the where I can find that, right? Because if I stay in that high activated state, I'll burn myself out and then I can't do any of the larger changes that need to happen to make this a safer world for my son, right? But if I can find a little bit of safety, I can connect to him, I'm a little bit more clear thinking, I can start, maybe I do some writing, maybe I make some calls, maybe I plan, you know, you know, something can happen because I'm, I settled in that moment. So as safe as possible. That was a really, I wonder, that was a wonderful explanation of that, of just like, of that, you know, the, the validation of like an actual, you know, a, a stress and anxiety around a given situation that's totally warranted. But then when it's transitioning into, you know, where your son is safe, does it still carry with you? And that being really the, the crux of it, that's, that's a, a beautiful way to think about it. Thank well, thank you, Inkem. This has been such a f uh, fantastic conversation. Um, do you want to share anything with the listeners about where they can find you, how they can learn more from you? So we, um, the Lumos Transforms uh, is where my home is and the Resilience Toolkit, you can find the, that website, .co, not .com. We thought there was a better use of $5,000 than an M. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and then... Um, personally, um, and we're on all the usual socials, yeah. Lumos it. And then personally, I'm on Twitter. It's probably my most, if you want to, with my name, Indefo Inchem. So maybe you'll put that in show notes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Excellent. And then, of course, I will mention one last time, uh, this uh, um, course uh, with you and Ray Johnson called Embodied Activism. Um, and I'm going to screw up the subtitle, Understanding the Intersections of embodiment and social justice. I think that's I think right. So, <laughs> so um, we're, we're just having so much fun. I was just like looking up great videos to share, right? Um, so it's really, really a joy to work with her. I'm so excited about that course. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait. It's going to be such an excellent, um, excellent course. Um, so if anybody's interested in that course, just check out our website, embodiedphilosophy.com. You'll find all the information there. All right. Thank you, Inkem. Thank you so much.